About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I want to just say good morning to you, church. I'm not sure if I should be saying good morning as a pastor who's preaching his last sermon or as a visiting pastor preaching his first sermon to you all. So whatever uh, side of that you want to take, feel free to take it this morning. It is a joy to have a chance to be with you and uh, to open up the word. I want to just to take a moment and share a couple updates for our family and what's going on in our lives. Um, as you well know, we're finishing up our role here at Lakeshore. I think officially this week I'll move my stuff out of the office and uh, prepare for Utah. We'll be spending some time over the next few Sundays traveling to different churches and presenting the ministry in Utah, and then visiting with uh, different supporters and trying to raise support for the ministry there. And so we'll be back the last two Sundays in July to be with you before we head out on August 2nd. It's hard to believe that time has gone that fast. I remember being up here in January sharing with you all the news that we were moving, and now it's here, which is um, it's a little sobering and uh, quicker than I would like it to be, but the Lord is good. And we're thankful for this opportunity to go from here and to be used for spreading the good news of Jesus in Utah. Let's pray, ask the Lord for his help this morning as we dig into this passage together. Father, we are so thankful that we have this hope that you are coming again. We're thankful for the truths we just sang about that because of the blood of Christ, because of what happened on the cross and what happened in the empty tomb, we have hope beyond what's here in this life. Father, we're thankful for your kindness to us and your willingness to, to redeem us, to reconcile us to yourself through the blood of Christ. And so we come this morning as a body, as a church family, not because of our commonality that we all get along for all these other reasons, but because of Jesus. Father, we come together because of you. And so we come together this morning to look at your word. Father, we do not want to hear from me this morning. We want to hear from you and your word. And so I pray this morning that you would help our ears to be turned on well to the truth of Scripture. Father, pray that you would help each one in here to be listening to your word in a way that would help them to see how they can love you more and see your greatness better. I pray that you would encourage the faint-hearted in here this morning as they consider the object of their faith, as they consider the greatness of their God. I pray for those here this morning who have not yet professed faith in Christ, that they would see how important it is to humble themselves before you. Father, for everyone in this room, I pray that you would help us as we look into your word, that you would encourage us and strengthen us. Lord, we look forward to what you have in store. Father, would you give me words and clarity? And Father, would you help us to enjoy this time as we, as we look into what you have to say for us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Each year, Grand Haven has a kite festival. 
just out of curiosity, how many of you have gone to the kite festival? Good for you. A few of you. I've seen pictures, okay, so that means I can speak with some authority this morning about what a kite looks like in the sky, okay? I know what a kite looks like in the sky, and to be honest, my experience with flying kites is similar to Charlie Brown. Uh, usually if they take off, it would crash. It was typically a kite I got from some prize bin from somewhere that was made of thin wood and would crack and break in the, the first pole as I would go down the yard or whatever I was doing to fly this kite. When you think about a kite flying in the air, it looks effortless, doesn't it? It's just floating up there in the sky and the wind is holding it up there and it's just beautiful. Whatever shape it's in, there's all kinds of different shapes and sizes of kites and it looks like it's just doing it of its own accord. But we know really well as we think about the whole process of a kite flying in the air that there is somebody who is holding the strings to that kite on the ground. In fact, if the kite was trying to take off on its own, it would just flop down the shoreline, wouldn't it? It would crash and fumble. If it was in the sky on its own, it would just drift down into some unknown place. It didn't have in of itself the ability to fly effortlessly and to float there in the sky. It has somebody who's holding the string and who's controlling it perfectly so it can accomplish the thing it's intended to do. As we consider the church this morning, I want you to think about it from this perspective. For centuries, the church has thrived and endured. It has gone through oppositions and struggles. It's faced all kinds of things, yet it continues to grow. I mean, think about this. You and I are meeting here right now. How many times have people tried to squash and snuff out the church? And yet here we are today, thousands of years after it began, and we are still meeting, praising the same Savior. And it's not because of us. It's not because we're dependent on ourselves or we have the ability in of ourselves to be here. No, the church is not dependent on us, but is led, it is strengthened, it is preserved by the capable hands of the object of our faith, the all-powerful God. So because of this, the church has power to thrive in loss, in impossible situations, in doubts, in oppression. Its ability to stand firm and grow is not due to the strength of its members, you and I, but to the object of our faith, who is God. The capable hands are the one who holds the strings, if you will. So our, our passage here, Acts 12, becomes an illustration for us of the power of God on display through the local church. It's a sweet story. And as an illustration, it becomes a comfort to our hearts as we consider the struggles and persecution, rejection, and even the marginalization of the church today. So this morning, I want to share with you four considerations, four things in this passage that remind us and point us to the greatness of our God, the power of the church. It's not you and me. It's the object in which we are trusting, the all-powerful God. So, beginning here, verses 1 through 5, consider how the church thrives in loss. Now, before we get into these verses, I want to give you a little context leading up to this. The church had been experiencing a lot of loss and suffering to this point. In fact, in Acts 4, Peter and the apostles, they were arrested. They had basically annoyed the high priest to a point where they thought, you know what, we're just going to send them into prison. Enough, of, enough is enough. 
Then later in chapter 5, after they've been released in chapter 4, they were imprisoned yet again by religious leaders who were now jealous of them because of their miraculous gifts and signs they had done. Then in chapter 7, here comes this guy named Stephen, a deacon in the church, full of wisdom and with a spirit dependence that was remarkable, and he was able to outwit all of the religious leaders. And their response? Jealousy. And so gritting their teeth, they stoned Stephen. He became the first martyr, which led to an increasing persecution in the local church. Yet the struggle wasn't just from outside the church. They had struggles inside the church. When Peter brought the news about the reception of the Gentiles to the message of the gospel, they had believed and received this message. There was opposition within the church, struggles they faced within. Then in chapter 11, we read about a man named Agabus who came and foretold about a coming famine on the land. A famine that would impact Judea, Jerusalem, the area around where these disciples are living, would affect many other areas as well, but a famine that would bring more suffering, more hardship. So think about this. The church has seen its leaders imprisoned two times, a deacon martyred, struggles over the reception of the Gentiles to the gospel message, and then a famine. And we haven't even gotten to chapter 12. So chapter 12, verse 1, begins with these words, about that time, and is setting for us all of, all of this stuff in the past, in light of that, now we come to a time of more loss. Yet where do we see this loss? First of all, we see it in death. Look at verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Now, one of our questions we need to ask right away is, who is this Herod the king? This is not Herod the Great, who put to death all the children under two years old in Matthew 2. This is not Herod Tetrarch, who would have John the Baptist's head taken off. This is not the Herod that Paul would later share his testimony to in Acts 26. This is not the other two lesser-known Herods in the New Testament. So now that you're completely confused about who we're talking about, this is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. And he had won the favor of the Jews and was ready to do anything to keep the favor of these Jews, which resulted in a disciple dying, Peter being imprisoned. He was self-seeking, willing to go toe-to-toe with God. He was being faithful to the heritage of his family. So this Herod arrested James, the brother of John, and he put him to death by the sword. I want you to think about this for a moment. This is James, the son of Zebedee, a leader in the church, one of the apostles who walked with Jesus. He was now dead. I mean, church, think about this. If a leader in your church is, is dead, is gone, you think, wow, this is hard for us to process. What does this look like now? So the persecution in the other church was continuing to grow. It was quickly escalating. And they're seeing their key leader dead. You can imagine the loss and the suffering and the hardship that came as a result of this. This was a dark and trying time for the church a time when it seemed as though trials and persecution were quickly followed by more trials and more persecution. So the intensity was growing like the heat of an ever-growing flame, and yet it continued with the imprisonment of Peter. Look at verses 3 and 4. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So here's Herod. He's looking on and he's watching how the death of James brings all of this pleasure to the Jews. So now he goes, grab, goes to get the big fish, if you will. Peter, who's the de facto leader, the one who preached at Pentecost. A powerful and key leader in the church. And now he's thinking, yes, I'm going to bring this one down as well. But not only that, think about the timing of what's happening here. Kent Hughes points out that all of this came about during the time of Passover which would have reminded the church of someone else who died around the same time, their Savior Jesus. So think about all that's going through the local church's mind right now. Was there going to be any relief? Was the church going to be snuffed out like a struggling flame? Was there any hope for this church, or was it just going to be loss after loss after loss? So Luke begins to provide this glimmer of hope a whisper in the darkness, if you will, when he speaks of the delay of Peter's death because of the Passover. And then we come to verse 5, and I love verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So though Peter's fate seems as though it was going to be the same as James, there was no hope for Peter, it seemed, but the church still earnestly prayed to God. They prayed for his deliverance. The church couldn't come out there and rescue Peter. They knew they couldn't barge into the jail cell and just bust open the shackles and bring him out and free him. They didn't have political leverage so they could sway the leaders to deliver Peter. They had nothing. But in their having nothing, they really had the greatest thing, who is God himself. And so this church comes and they pray to God you see, the church's power does not diminish in the face of loss. The church cannot be snuffed out like a struggling flame. And the answer is because the source of the church's power is not from within themselves, but from the all-powerful God. So no matter what kind of circumstances arise, the church always has access to him and his power. I want you to consider a question this morning. Have you given up hope that God's church can thrive in the increasingly hostile culture in which we live. Have you given up hope? It may feel as though we have encountered loss after loss from within the church and certainly from outside of the church. Yet our hope is not our own strength to persevere and to see the gospel advance. Our hope is not resting in particular leaders or particular circumstances. We do not look inward for our strength. Instead, we look to the all-powerful God who has no equal. He is the source of our strength. So though we face loss, we do not despair, but we have hope because of who God is. So can I encourage you this morning to do exactly as the early church did. We pray to God that God would preserve his church we pray to God that God would help us to be faithful witnesses. We pray to God that we would be able to endure in the face of loss and hardship. But there's another question we need to ask ourselves this morning. How do you respond when loss comes your way? The truth is, loss does come. 
There is no doubt that people prayed for James. And certainly there was no doubt that James himself was praying for deliverance. In fact, he'd already been delivered once before. Yet God does not always deliver in the way that we desire. John Bloom makes this comment. It says, Jesus allowed the sword to fall on James as intentionally as he opened Peter's prison door. Just think about that. How do you respond when loss comes? What do you do when loss comes and we ask ourselves, Lord, what what are you up to here? Are you willing to trust him that he is just as much over the death of James as he is over the coming rescue of Peter? Are you willing to trust him that he is just as good to James as he is to Peter? Are you willing to trust him that great power was shown to both of these men in Peter's escape that we'll see in just a moment, but also of James's resurrection to newness of life? When loss comes, let us trust God that even if we can't explain the why of the loss, and we can't see what God is doing through it, we can still say, yes, God, you're greater than all of that, and so our hope is in him. Church, we don't fall into despair when loss comes our way. The power of the church is not diminished when loss comes because we are resting in the power of the all-powerful God. Here's a second consideration. Consider how the church thrives in impossibilities. Many of us are familiar with a guy named Harry Houdini, the great magician of the early 1900s. He did a lot of crazy things to try to thrill the crowds. He would be shackled with chains underwater and having to escape in a certain amount of time so he wouldn't die. And the greater and more life-threatening the activity or thing he tried to accomplish, the more thrilled and excited the crowd was. And in the end, the glory all came back to one person, Harry Houdini. When we look at this passage in front of us this morning, we see the impossibility of what's happening with Peter. But all of it is set up so that we can see the all-powerful God working out and overcoming this impossibility. So look at this impossible situation. Verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door regarding the prison. Peter's time was running out. It was running out fast. The Passover was finishing up. Herod was ready to bring out this execution. Certainly there would be a trial, if you will, but with certain death as the outcome. Verse 4 tells us that he was delivered to four squads of soldiers. These four squads were 16 in total, four in each group, and they would rotate through each watch of the night. They were ensuring that no person was going to be caught asleep. And they wanted to make sure that Peter was not going to escape. Remember, Peter had been rescued previously by an angel. They weren't taking any chances here. Peter was bound by two chains to two soldiers in the cell. And then there were two soldiers outside of the cell ready to be on guard if anything happened within the cell. This was an impossible situation, but church, isn't it true that God loves those kinds of situations to work? He loves to work in impossibilities. He loves to work in a way that shows his glory and his might. This is where we begin with the God of the impossible in verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. 
And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I love this narrative. Luke is giving us a play-by-play look at what took place here. He wants us to have a vivid picture on display for us this morning. And each time we look at this text of how God was able to rescue Peter, He wants us to see how marvelous and how wonderful God is. So this angel appears in the cell with this bright light, and he begins the process of rescuing Peter. He wakes him up, tells him to get dressed. Peter obeys, and you can just kind of sense from this passage that Peter is kind of fumbling along, and the angel is like, okay, now now do this, and and then now do this, and he's trying to help him along so Peter can actually get out of the cell. Peter, thinking that this is a vision, He's had visions before, didn't realize that this was actual reality, but he obeyed. And as one writer noted, which I think is so interesting, just as it is clear that this rescue came from the angel, so it is clear that Peter contributed nothing to it. He had nothing to do with this. He was just fumbling along out the door as the angel led him down the street. Past the two guards who asked no questions. We have no idea, were these guards asleep? Were they awake? Did they realize? Did they not know? Were they mistaken? We don't know what happened, but he walks past these two guards, and then this iron gate opens up of its own accord, and there Peter is free, completely free. And finally, he understands that this is real, and he gives the credit and the glory to God. Verse 11, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. The power of of the church does not diminish in the face of chains or impossible situations because the God of the church is a God of the impossible. Church, here's a question for us this morning as we think about what we see here in this passage. Are there situations in your life that seem impossible? They seem impossible as if they're so great, God, you can't, you just can't do this thing. Maybe you struggle to believe that God can protect and grow his church in the midst of hostility and marginalization and persecution and oppression and all that the culture is now putting on the local churches. Maybe you struggle to believe that a particular person can come to faith in Christ. They just seem so lost, Lord. There's no way that you can redeem that person. Maybe you struggle to believe that God can save your marriage. Maybe you feel like your marriage is just on the rocks and it can't go anywhere but down. Maybe you struggle to believe that God will rescue and can redeem your wayward child who has left the faith. Or maybe there's another impossible situation in your life you're thinking of right now. You think, God, I just don't think you can do this. And whatever impossible situation you have in your life, we need to remember that we serve the God of the impossible. Yet this isn't always easy to believe, is it? It's not always to believe how great and mighty our God is. So do you want your faith to grow in the God who is the object of our faith, the God of the impossible? 
Do you struggle to believe that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think? And so here's my encouragement this morning, church. Study him. Study the object of your faith. And here's just a couple suggestions for you this morning. A couple thoughts for you as you think about studying the object of your faith so that you can trust him and have confidence that, God, you can overcome the things that seem impossible to me. First of all, read the Old Testament and watch how God protected and preserved his people over and over and over and over again. There's, there's Pharaoh. He's pretty powerful. He's pretty great. God took him down. There are these large armies that come against Israel, and God just wipes them out. Over and over again, God shows himself powerful and mighty. So church, if you want to increase your faith, you're increasing your faith by increasing your understanding of the object of your faith. Who is God? And we do that by looking at his word. And then we turn to the New Testament. We think about this wonderful example and display of God's power in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. I love how he says this. And what is the immeasurable greatness? You catch that? Not limited greatness. Not temporary greatness. No, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Think about this. You want to see God's power on display? You look to the cross and you look to the empty tomb and there our Savior is seated on the right hand of the Father. Like we serve a powerful God. Can I get an amen to that? Like this is good news. So church, if you want to see the object of your faith, we look to the resurrection and we know that he is great. In Psalm 105, the psalmist encourages us to remember the wondrous works that he has done. Maybe this afternoon you need to sit down and just think about, Lord, I want to know all the things that you've done in my life to see how over and over and over again you've proved yourself faithful here and here and here and here. So you read the Old Testament. You say, oh, God is so mighty there. You, you look at the New Testament, all that God has done there. Then you look at your, your little short life and you say, wow, God, you've done so much in my life. And then the end is, I serve an amazing God. I serve a God who's far greater than I could ever imagine. Then you look back at that impossible situation in your life. Think, wow, that's too big. But then you compare it to the object of your faith. And then you ask yourself, is it really impossible? Can God not do that? We need to study the object of our faith to see the greatness of our God. Here's number three. Consider how the church thrives in doubts. Consider how the church thrives in doubts. There are many different types of surprises that we face in life. Some surprises bring joy, some not so much joy. On the negative side, when you go to the gas station, you pull your car up, and you put the gas thing in your car, and you start filling it up, and you see the number at the top, that is a surprise you don't want to see. A surprise that's been hard for all of us. Or a different kind of surprise, you're walking down the hallway, you decide to open your child's bedroom, and you open the door to discover what's in there, and you realize how much of a disaster it is or how bad it smells. And that's a surprise you don't appreciate. There are other surprises, though, on the positive end that lead to joy. And sometimes we have joy in those surprises that overwhelm us to the point where we don't even know what to say. We're speechless. We're just in awe of what just happened. 
This is the kind of surprise that came to a servant girl named Rhoda from a surprising visitor. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in, reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Peter had been in prison for several days. I think it's important for us to remember that. And this church had been praying earnestly the entire time. Peter's escape likely took place at nighttime, so here he is in the the middle of the night some point, and they're still praying on his behalf. Likely it was going to be the next day that he would come and he would be executed. And so they're praying and giving all of their heart into this, praying earnestly that the Lord would rescue him. They were committed to prayer even when their prayers for James were not answered, maybe in the way that they wished. So when Peter came and he knocked on the door, here comes Rhoda to answer And she responded in a joyful belief because there Peter was standing on the other side of the door. But her excitement and surprise didn't lead to her opening the door, but to running back in the house to tell everybody what just had happened. You can just imagine her overcome with excitement, overcome with joy. It's Peter. Our our prayer has been answered by the Lord. The God of the impossible has done something truly incredible. But then look at this surprising response in verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So as Rhoda came back in the house, picture this in your mind. She's coming in with full excitement, overcome with joy. And she comes in and the people inside the house begin to doubt her sanity. The actual term here is, you're raving mad. You're crazy. And the net translation pulls this out and it says, there's like a shouting match taking place in the house. So here's Rhoda over here. It's Peter. He's outside. And then over here, the others are like, no, it's not. And then Peter's, Rhoda's over here. It's really Peter. He's outside. No, it's probably just his angel. No, it really is. No, it's not. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And then you hear, there's Peter having a great time outside, waiting to come in. And finally, the people recognize and they go to the door and they open it and they are amazed. The answer to their prayer. So you can imagine as Peter comes in the house, there's a lot of talking going on. Rhoda's like, hey, they didn't believe me, Peter, but I I believed. And they're like, no, you know, we kind of believed, but we kind of didn't believe. And they're talking to Peter. Well, how did you get out? And Peter's like, okay, guys, be quiet. Let me tell you how God delivered and rescued me. So Peter goes on to explain how the Lord delivered him. Church, the power of the church, it is not diminished by doubts. Because the object of our faith is not in ourselves, but it's in the all-powerful and benevolent God. God is able to work wonders and mighty things even despite us. Can I encourage you this morning? Pray in spite of your doubts. Now, I need to be clear here. I'm not trying to encourage you to grow your doubts. Doubts aren't a badge of honor that we want to carry around. We doubt because we're weak. We doubt because we struggle to trust God. 
Yet those doubts should never keep us from getting on our knees before the Lord. Sometimes we may pray, God, you didn't answer the prayer in the way that I wanted last time. I'm not going to pray to you this time. Certainly these Christians could have operated in that frame of mind. They had prayed for James. They had prayed for his deliverance and release, and God did not answer in the way they would have wanted. They could have given up, but they didn't. In the same way, we should continue to pray despite our doubts, and instead of trusting in ourselves, we trust in the object of our faith. So first of all, we need to pray in spite of our doubts. We need to pray earnestly in light of the object of our faith. These believers may have doubted, but they did pray earnestly. For the days that Peter was in prison and the night before his death, they were on their knees, stretched out before the Lord, pleading with him to do something mighty and impossible. They prayed earnestly in light of the object of their faith. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 through 21 really pulls together who our God is and his might and power. Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God can do far more than we ask and far more than we think. So instead of focusing in on your doubts and your struggles and your questioning of God's ability, instead focus on him and the power and might we just talked about. Seen in the word of God. We focus instead on the object of our faith and then we pray earnestly to him. We plead with him. And what helps us in this is as we acknowledge that God is the one who we need to turn to and trust, we're also acknowledging that God sometimes does not answer the prayers in the way that we desire. But we know that he's answering the prayers in the way that is truly best and good. So we trust him. We trust him. We trust that he will answer the prayer in the way that is best for us and all involved. And we pray earnestly in light of the object of our faith. And here's just one more thought. Pray in thankfulness. Pray in thankfulness. Have you considered how good it is that God is willing to answer your prayers even though you doubt? None of us has perfect faith. None of us has perfect faith to believe everything. There's always doubt somewhere hidden in our hearts, and yet God, in his grace and goodness, he answers those prayers. Are you thankful for that this morning? Are you thankful that he is good to us as we plead with him about the things that are heavy on our hearts? Here's number four. Consider how the church thrives in oppression. Now, God did not forget about Herod. Herod had foolishly decided to go toe-to-toe with God, by killing an apostle, striving to kill Peter. And so our story ends with this crescendo as Herod seeks more glory for himself and God triumphs. First of all, we see Herod as his judge in verse 18. He's got to finish up what had just happened. Now when day came, after Peter's escape, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Just imagine the scene unfolding. 
Here are these two soldiers in this cell, and at some point they wake up or become aware of the fact that the prisoner who is shackled in between them is gone. You can imagine the look of disbelief and fear as they look at each other. What just happened? Then they go out the door, and there's the other two sentries, and they're talking to them. Uh, He's gone. They're like, what? You lost him? And they come back in. They're talking amongst each other. They're confused, and they're fearful. They were responsible to guard one man, and they had failed. So as daybreak came, there was no prisoner, and here Herod comes, aware now of what's taken place, and he needs to bring, he needs to bring justice on what happened. He sought to win the favor of the Jews. He pursued Peter as far as he could without any success. So Herod came as judge, and he sentences these guards to execution. So after all of this, Herod travels down to Caesarea. And her story is not done, though, because God is not done with Herod. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last A time arose when Tyre and Sidon, who depended on Judea for food, they had made Herod angry. And so they began to leverage their contacts. They wanted to find a way to get peace with Herod. So taking up an opportunity, Herod came to give this wonderful speech to them. Josephus, a first century historian, describes Herod coming out on the scene dressed this way. In a robe made altogether of silver of quite wonderful weaving. So just picture this. Herod is coming out with his shimmering clothes and the sun is beaming down on Herod and light is reflecting off of Herod as he gives his speech to the people who are trying to win his favor. So they're going to say anything they can to get his favor back. And the people respond, the voice of a God and not of a man. Upon hearing these words and failing to give God glory, Herod was struck down by the angel. The first time the angel struck someone, it was to deliver Peter and raise him up. The second time in our passage that the angel comes to strike was to deliver by bringing someone down. In this case, the oppressor. Herod had sought the glory for himself, had challenged God, and he had lost. This is where Herod the judge, Herod the orator, become Herod the evangelist. Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So church, what was the result of Herod's persecution and oppression? What was the result of all of his attempts to silence the church? What was the result of him killing an apostle and striving to kill a second? Verse 24 tells us the word of God increased and it multiplied. This is the pattern we see in the book of Acts earlier when people come to stone Stephen. So turn to Acts chapter 8 real quick, 8 verse 1. In chapter 8, we read of persecution that came at the hands of Saul in response to all that took place with Stephen. 
8, chapter 1 says this, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Isn't this good news? The power of the church is not limited by oppressive rulers who are seeking an opportunity to silence the church. The power of the church is not diminished in the face of oppression, opposition, and persecution. And the answer for why is because the all-powerful God is the one who sustains, protects, preserves, and he grows his church. No matter what they try to do, the church will just continue to grow and grow because God is the one who is sustaining it. Church, consider this. God's promises, they will stand. God's promises will stand. In fact, go back to chapter 1 of Acts. In chapter 1, we see this promise. We talked about this several months ago when I was up here preaching from Acts 1. 1 verse 8, a key verse in the book of Acts, and he's giving this promise. And I want you to see this because I want you to see how God is faithful to carry out his promises. But you, verse 8, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So God promises to them the Spirit. Chapter 2, they receive the Spirit. God promises them that they will be witnesses to the end of the earth. And what we see through the book of Acts, they are witnesses. And God's promise is still being fulfilled today through his spirit, through each of us. As we continue to share the good news of Jesus here in Grand Haven, for some of us in Utah, for some of us around the world, this promise is still being fulfilled God is being faithful to these promises. And though oppression and persecution will come at the church, we have this guarantee. The word of God, it will continue forward. It cannot be bound by shackles. It cannot be stopped by powerful rulers. It's not hindered by our lack of faith. Because of this, the church will continue to grow and God's promises will stand because of who we are trusting in, the object of our faith, the all-powerful God. Here's a second consideration for us this morning. Those who oppose God always lose. Those who oppose God always lose. We may not see it happen in this side of eternity, but there is hope for us, church. That those who are seeking to snuff out the local church, they're seeking to, to, to silence the message of the gospel. God will one day make all things right. But there's another question that comes up in this as well. A question we need to ask ourselves this morning are you standing in opposition to God as his enemy? Are you standing in opposition to God as his enemy? Romans 5.10 tells us that all of us who have not been reconciled to God by his son are in fact his enemies. If we've not experienced the blood of Christ, if we've not been reconciled to God, then we are standing in opposition to God like Herod was. The only way to be reconciled to God and no longer stand in opposition to him is through the blood of Jesus Christ. James tells us that God opposes the proud, like Herod, but he gives grace to the humble, to those who lay themselves before him. This begins by us, first of all, acknowledging who God is in all of his holiness. Seeing God and saying, God, I know you're holy. That makes me a sinner. 
makes me a desperate sinner who's broken, who cannot merit in anything that I do favor with you. And so we have to consider Jesus, who is our Savior, the one who came and shed his blood for us. And then we have to consider that it's through the response of repentance, me turning away from my sin and then turning to Christ in faith and trusting him and him alone. And this is how I become reconciled to God. Please hear this warning. If you are standing in opposition to God this morning, come be reconciled with him. Come be reconciled with this great God. Humble yourself before him and acknowledge him. And all with the joy that you will experience of being in Christ and the hope of eternal life and all that God has in store for you. But you have to submit and humble yourself before him. The church has power to thrive in loss, impossibilities, doubts, and even oppression. The church's power remains unwavering because it does not rest in the people of the church or the circumstances in which we live, but in the God in whom they trust. The church can continue to thrive and grow because it is held in the capable hands of the all-powerful God. So church, we can be encouraged this morning. We serve a great God. And I hope this morning that in some way the object of your faith was beginning to grow as you see God in his greatness and his power here in Acts chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning for this reminder. We're thankful this morning that you are willing to show us in this example the greatness of your power and might. You're willing to show us a display of your greatness even despite the weakness of the church and its people. Father, we, just like them, are also weak. And so this passage gives us hope and encouragement knowing that we can come to you, the object of our faith, in confidence. Not our own confidence in ourselves, but the confidence we have in this great God that we serve. Father, thank you for showing us over and over and over again your power and might as we see so clearly in your word. As we see it so clearly, Father, even in our own lives, if we were to just take the time to see it and to look. So, Father, I pray for this church family this morning that you would help them to see the greatness of their God. Father, whatever situation is going on in their life, whatever struggles they're facing, whatever frustrations they're feeling about life in this world, Father, help them to turn to you, to the object of their faith. Father, we pray this morning for some in here who have not yet believed in Christ who stand as enemies of you, Father, would you work in their heart? Father, would you help them to realize that if they stand in opposition to you, they will not win. Father, none can. Lord, may they humble themselves and be reconciled to you through the blood of Christ. Father, please work in their hearts this morning. Father, thank you for this time to open up your word. Thank you, Father, for the truth and the encouragement it gives us. Lord, help us to leave here this morning ready for the week ahead because we have this great hope, the object of our faith, the all-powerful, good God that we serve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.